You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now with your Bibles open to John chapter 6. We will read together verses 35 through 40, and then we'll pray together. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need your help to understand your word, and we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide today. May our hearts be sanctified by your truth. May you give to us the grace to obey you. May you incline our hearts toward you and toward your word and toward obedience and draw us nearer to you through this passage of Scripture. We pray that we may hear the voice of our Savior in these words and that we may respond appropriately, that you would comfort us and encourage us and grant us the assurance that these words bring. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I believe it is is true that of all of the people on the face of the earth, Christians accurately can be described as a people of the book, a people of the truth. Everything about the Christian church and the Christian faith and the Christian belief and doctrine is based upon truth. We are people of truth. We love the God of truth. We have been set free by the truth. We have been delivered from lies unto truth. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and truth We love and obey and believe and have been saved by the one who is called the way, the truth, and the life. And our God is a God of truth, and his word is described as truth. And so if anything should characterize Christians, it is a love for and a passion for and a delight in the truth of God's word. At all times and all circumstances, the truth of God's word should cause our hearts to soar. And I believe that the natural response of somebody who has been born again by truth is that when we hear truth and when we see truth, We respond to it, and our hearts want to soar into truth. And it is only if we have been mired down in sin or despondency or some act of disobedience that a child of God would not soar in their heart when they hear and see and read truth. It is because of something in us that has retarded or quenched or crippled those natural longings of the child of God. But naturally, the natural response of a child of God who has been saved by truth is to love truth and to delight in it. And there is probably no more assuring, comforting, encouraging, equipping, uh, heart-soaring truth that you can find anywhere in Scripture than you find in John chapter 6. It is one of those marvelous chapters that you can read through a dozen times, maybe in your personal devotion time, and maybe you've read through John 6 a dozen times, but as you as you stop in John 6 and ponder what is being said, It ought to cause your heart to just soar in worship and adoration and praise to the God of truth. What we read in John 6 has to be some of the most encouraging 
and comforting words in all of Scripture. Comforting for the true child of God, but terrifying to somebody who is a professor of faith, but not a possessor of faith. To somebody who is a child of the devil, but has a false assurance because they made a profession of faith at some time, or because they experienced a religious zeal at some time. But for those who walk in the truth, these words are comforting. For those who pretend to walk in the truth, these words are terrifying. And they ought to be. And the heart of the child of God ought to soar at the truth that we find in John chapter 6. So we're looking today at verses 38 and 39 of John 6. And I know it's been a couple of weeks since we took the time to go through verse 37. Even though you may have found the truths in verse 37, at least some of you might have, a little disconcerting or uncomfortable or hard to grasp, hard to accept, hard to swallow. I don't want you to think that having been done with verse 37 that we can now sort of sweep that off the edge of the stage, off of the edge of our lives and our thoughts. And okay, well now verses 38 and 39 have nothing to do with those uncomfortable things Jim was talking about a couple weeks ago. Not at all. Verses 38 and 39 are the explanation of verse 37. And verses 38 and 39 is Jesus showing why He is able to make the magnificent promise that He does in verse 37. So in order just to refresh and remind you of what we covered in verse 37, read it with me again, and I will just quickly state those three magnificent truths that we took three Sundays to unfold. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We saw that there are three magnificent truths in verse 37. Number one, that the Father has given a people to the Son. This is a people whom the Father chose before time because He loved those people before time. And that group of people chosen out of the world, out of the mass of humanity, He chose for His own precious possession. The Father gave those people as a love gift to His Son. He committed them. The first person of the Trinity committed that group of humanity to the second person of the Trinity. The second magnificent truth, all those whom the Father has given to the Son will with certainty, infallibly, without fail, come to the Son. Why? Because the Father gave them to the Son. Not because they're more spiritually inclined. Not because they are better spiritually. Not because they're more likely to believe. But because the Father gave them to His Son, they will come to the Son. The third magnificent truth was that all those who come to the Son will be received by the Son. The Father gave a people to the Son. All those whom the Father gave to the Son will come to the Son. And all those who come to the Son, the Son will willingly receive all of them because they were given to Him by the Father. That's verse 37. Now verse 37 teaches the doctrines of what we call election and its sister doctrine of predestination. Verse 37 also teaches the doctrine of what we would call the effectual call of God's elect or some people call it irresistible grace. And verse 37 also teaches the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. Those three doctrines are all in verse 37. And you may be saying to yourself, but I thought some wild-eyed fanatic named John Calvin invented those doctrines out of his fertile brain sometime in the 15th century. Nope. Not at all. In fact, and this might shock some of you, if John Calvin had never lived, we would still be reading the same words in chapter 6 that we're reading today. And if John Calvin had never lived, those words would still mean the same thing today that they meant when Jesus said them. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now that's the backdrop of verses 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39, you will see 
They begin to introduce some of the same themes because they're explaining the thing, the themes in verse 37. But now something is added in verse 38, 39, and 40 that was not there before. Pick it up in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now you can see that some of the themes of verse 37 are restated in verses 38 and 39, but something is added and it is this phrase or this concept, this theme of the will of the Father. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. In fact, you notice the will of the Father mentioned in verse 38. It's mentioned in verse 39 and it's mentioned at the beginning of verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the will of the Father now comes into this equation. How is it that Jesus can speak so confidently about those whom the Father has given to him, that they will come to him, and that having come to him, he will keep them, or he will receive all of them? How can he speak so boldly? He can speak so boldly because Jesus knows what the will of the Father is concerning those whom he has given to his Son. And because the Son knows what the will of the Father is, the Son is able to do all of the will of the Father. So verses 38 through 40, we have introduced now into this issue of salvation, the will of the Father. And we are reminded again that salvation is not a matter of man's will. It's not a matter of man being willing to have let God have His way. Salvation is from first to last and everything in between, determined by, decreed by, and affected by the will of God. You are born again by the will of God. You are called by the will of God. You are chosen by the will of God. You persevere all the way to the end by the will of God. We read that, to, or we sang that today in Amazing Grace. It is grace that has brought me safe thus far. It is grace that will bring me home. Why will I eventually persevere to the end? Not because of anything in me, but sheerly by the grace of God. Because it is all the will of God. There's no discussion in verses 37 through 40, of the will of man, of man allowing God to have His will, of man cooperating in His will with the will of God. None of that is mentioned because Jesus' only concern in this passage is to describe the will of God in salvation and to show that that will of God is the thing that makes God's people secure in their salvation. It is that will, God's will, that not only has brought us to faith, it has brought us safe thus far, and it will bring us safely home all the way to the end, all determined by God's will and God's will alone. All right, now we dive into verse 38. So now we talked about the will of God. There are two things we're going to see. Number one, that the Son always does perfectly and infallibly the will of the Father. And number two, that the will of the Father is the salvation and security of His people. The Son always does the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is the salvation and the security of those who are His people. Verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, this describes Jesus being the one, the Son, who does infallibly and perfectly the will of the Father. And He came down from heaven not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This, by the way, this idea of Jesus coming down from heaven is mentioned seven times in John chapter 6 alone. It's a major theme throughout the whole chapter. It is Jesus who has come down from heaven. He came from the Father. He came from heaven to earth. And He states here the reason for His coming. The reason for His coming was not to give us a good example. It wasn't to demonstrate what true love is. It wasn't to be a political revolutionary. His reason for coming down from heaven to earth, His incarnation was so that He would do 
perfectly and infallibly the will of the Father. You see it mentioned in verse 33. Jesus says, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. And of course, he's speaking of himself. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. The fact that he comes down from heaven is mentioned in verse 38. In verse 41 and 42, the crowd repeats his statement that he came down from heaven. And this is what they marveled over. Is this not Joseph's son? How is it that he can say he came down from heaven? This is Joseph's son. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know what from where he came. How is it he can say he existed before he came here and came down from heaven? The crowd marvels over that. Look down at verse 50. Jesus says it again. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. And then Jesus says it again in verse 58 and verse 51. That he came down from heaven. And why did he come down from heaven? Not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. That is the Father. He came to do the Father's will. I'm building this up because this is important when we get into verse 39. Jesus came to do fully and infallibly the will of the Father. Always and only the will of the Father. You go all the way back into the Old Testament, some of the prophecies that have to do with the coming of the Messiah. Back in Isaiah chapters 42 through 53, a section known as the Servant Songs. And in Isaiah's prophecy, the latter half of Isaiah's prophecy, verses 42 to 53, this picture of the perfect servant of God is prophesied. Isaiah promised that in spite of all of the failings of the nation of Israel and all of their disobedience and all of their unwillingness and inability to do God's will, God would send one who was a perfect servant who would fully and finally and infallibly and completely do His will. This perfect servant, spoken of in chapter 42, verse 1, where Isaiah says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And that whole passage of Isaiah describes that perfect servant of Jehovah who would come and do all of Jehovah's will. And finally, he would be obedient to the Jehovah even to the point of death. And he would carry our sicknesses and bear in his own self our sins. He would be bruised for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. It would please the Father to chastise Him in place of us. That obedient servant of Isaiah would come and He would fulfill all of the Father's desire. Isaiah 42 through 53. And then it's prophesied in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now listen to this quotation because if you're familiar with your New Testament or the Psalms, this will sound familiar. Isaiah 42, or sorry, 40, verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. Now this is David speaking. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, this is David speaking, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now that's David speaking. But was David speaking just of himself? This delight to do the will of the Father? He wasn't. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews quotes that very same passage and he applies it to the work of Christ and says it is written of Christ. Behold, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I come and I delight to do your will, your laws within my heart. That was a reference to the Messiah. This is the way he is portrayed in the Old Testament as that perfect prophet, the perfect king, the righteous judge, the perfect servant who would come and obey all of the Father gave him to do and fulfill perfectly and obey perfectly the will of the Father. And then in John chapter 4, verses 34, remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then Jesus said it again in chapter 5, verse 19, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Remember when we covered that in John chapter 5? 
We observe that even though Jesus in that context was claiming total equality with God, what he was saying is though I am equal with the Father in sovereignty, in the ability to give life to whom I will, in the power to resurrect the dead, to do all things, I work on the Sabbath, I am running the universe even as we speak. He is claiming total equality with God. And even in the context of that, he says that as the Son, he does nothing of himself. In other words, the Son, as God, is not a renegade deity. He is not a maverick messiah off doing his own thing, accomplishing his own will with his own agenda, doing something at conflict or at odds with the Father. So the Son, though perfectly God and fully God, is himself not in opposition to or in uh, contrast to the Father doing his own thing with his own agenda. The Son always does only what the Father wills. And the will of the Son and the will of the Father are never at odds. Not in creation, not in redemption, not in anything. The will of the Father and the will of the Son are one. So whatever the will of the Father is, that is the will of the Son, and they are never in conflict with one another. James White in his book, Drawn by the Father, writes this, Nothing could be less arguable and more obvious than the fact that the Son does the will of the Father. The idea that the Son would ever disobey or seek His own will over the Father's will is so ridiculous that the mind of the believer automatically recoils at the thought. There must be full and complete unity between them. It is inconceivable that there should be strife, tension, or disunity in the Godhead. Is that not true? End quote. I mean, the end quote comes before, is that not true? Is that not true what I just read to you, what James White says? The thought that the Father and the Son could be at odds with each other is so ridiculous that our mind and our heart, the child of God, recoils at such a thought. That the Father would ever will something that the Son did not will and would not accomplish? It's ludicrous. It's preposterous. There's never any conflict. Never any odds between the members of the Trinity. So if Jesus came to do His own will, why is this significant? It's significant because of what is in verses 39 and 40. You see, we're not left to imagine what the will of the Father is. There are a lot of different elements to God's will. There are a lot of different wills even within God. The will of God is like a multifaceted diamond where you kind of look at it and you turn it, and there are a lot of different characteristics and elements to God's will. But the question is, what will, and specifically what is it that Jesus is saying, is the will of the Father that He came to accomplish? We're not, it's not left to our imagination. Verses 39 and 40 tell us. Verse 39. Back in chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now I want you to notice that this will is described from two different vantage points. In verse 39, it is described from the divine sovereignty vantage point. Verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That describes the work of the Father, the will of the Son, the will of the Father from the divine perspective. That very same will is then described in verse 40 from the perspective of human responsibility. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The same will, the same will of salvation is described from the vantage point of divine sovereignty and from the vantage point of human responsibility, both in back-to-back verses. And I want you to notice again, we are not asked to take sides as to which one of these we like best. Some people read things like that and they say, well, I believe the Bible speaks about divine sovereignty and the Bible speaks about human responsibility and I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. You know what's the problem with that? The truth is somewhere in between. If the truth were somewhere in the tr- between, the Bible tells what the truth is, don't you think? That the authors wouldn't have to state one or the other and then ask us to find some mediating ground? 
The truth is not in between. These are the truth. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they're both true. The truth is not some mixture, some amalgamation of the two. They are both true. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And this will of the Father for our salvation is described in verse 39 from the vantage point of divine sovereignty and in verse 40 from the vantage point of human responsibility. And they are both true. It's not somewhere in between. It is those. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. So what is the will of the Father? Look at verse 39. We've seen now that the Son perfectly and always fully does the will of the Father. There is no conflict between the two. Now look at verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, and we'll pick up verse 40 next week. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, Jesus says. He has given to me a people, and His will is that I will receive those people, and that I will keep those people, and that I will lose none of those people, and that I will raise all of those people up on the last day. That is the Father's will. That is what Jesus came to do. That security and salvation of God's people is described in verse 39 negatively and positively. Set us apart from each other. Notice the negative statement. I lose nothing. That's stated negatively. Here's the positive side. I will raise it up at the last day. And the it in verse 39 is the him of verse 40, and it's the him of verse 54. 44, and it's the hymn of verse 54 as well. So it's not a generic group of people. It is actually individual peoples. All that the Father has given to me, I will lose nothing. That's the negative statement. I will keep everything. I will raise them up at the last day. It is grace that has brought me safe thus far. It's grace that will bring me home. I will raise them all up on the last day. So what is the will of the Father for His people? That the Son lose none of them. What does the word lose mean in this context? What does it mean to be lost in this context? Does it mean that Jesus misplaces us? I'm not going to misplace any of them. They might be in hell, but at least I'll know where they're at. Because I didn't technically lose them because I know where they're at. They're in hell. So you can't say that I lost them or forgot where they're at. Is that it? Is that what it means to be lost? Who's he talking to? A bunch of unbelieving Jews. And he has pressed upon them the results of their unbelief. It is damnation. If you come to me, I'll give you eternal life. The opposite of eternal life is that he will lose none. Losing is eternal perishing. It's eternal hell. It's the eternal wrath of God. It's eternal perdition. If eternal life is what he has guaranteed us, then losing is the opposite of that. And Jesus is saying, of all that the Father has given to me, none of them will perish. Why? Because verse 40, they will behold, they will believe, I will give them eternal life and I will raise them up. So of all that the Father has given to me, none of them, not one of them, will perish. All of them will be raised up on the last day. How is it that you and I could possibly be lost? What are the means by which you and I could be lost? Well, I suppose, hypothetically speaking, if it were possible, and it's not possible because Jesus has told us it's not possible, I suppose somebody could conjecture that we could be lost because of something outside of us, like Satan or circumstances or demons or false teachers or or maybe my own lack of faith or my own lack of obedience or sin in my own life or I die at a, at a moment. I, I yelled at my wife today before I left the door. I didn't, or I wouldn't use this as an illustration. I, I yelled at my wife this morning as I left the door and I stormed out and I was I was uh, mad and I got in the truck and burned rubber out my driveway and all the way down my road and I was angry till I got here and I died when I got here and I died in a moment of sin and so I'm lost. I suppose somebody could conjecture 
in contrast to Jesus, that I could be lost by something outside of myself or by some circumstance or by my sin. I suppose others might conjecture that I could be lost because of something inside of myself, that is, some inherent failing in me, (laughs) as if I don't have any of those, some inherent failing in me, some weakness, some lack of faith, some lack of ability to persevere, some lack of of obedience, some oversight on my part, some inability to fulfill all of the commands of God, some lack of my own righteousness. Verse 39 precludes all of those possibilities. He's going to lose none. He doesn't say, I'm going to lose none to this or none to that. He just says none. doesn't matter what you might conjecture that might threaten the security of a believer inside that person, outside that person, around that person, no matter what time, no matter what circumstance, no matter what situation, the promise is none. Not some to something and not none to this one thing. It's none. It's across the board none. It doesn't matter what threatens us. His promise is I will lose none. That is the ironclad promise of Jesus. For those whom the Father has given to me. Now I ask you this. Is failure for the Son of God an option? Is failure for the Son of God an option? Is failure to do the will of the Father an option for the Son? Is it possible? Is it possible that the Father gave to the Son a task to fulfill? But the Father did not count upon the fact that the Son would be either unwilling or unable to do what the Father gave Him to do. Is it possible that the Father's trust in the Son, in committing people to the Son, was a misplaced trust? Because the Son could always fail to do what the Father gave Him to do. Absolutely not. Absolutely impossible. Why? Well, if you believe that it is possible for somebody who has been saved and been redeemed and given eternal life, for them to finally perish, this is what you are stuck with. You are stuck with a Savior who failed to do what the Father gave Him to do. What did the Father give him to do? The Father gave this task to him in giving him a people, save those people, sanctify those people, keep those people all the way to the end. And Jesus said, I will do what the Father has given me to do. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, you are stuck with a Savior who is a failure because he has failed to do what the Father gave him to do. And it can only be because of one of two things. Either the Savior was unwilling to do the will of the Father, or He was unable to do the will of the Father. One of those two things. Either the Savior was unwilling, or the Savior was unable. Now, I don't believe that those who teach that you can lose your salvation are consciously willing to embrace any of those options. I don't think that people who believe you can lose your salvation find any of that palatable. None of them would want to say, yeah, I think Jesus is a failure. And none of them would like to say, I think Jesus was unwilling to do the Father's will. And none of them would want to say, I think that Jesus was unable to do the Father's will. None of them would say those things. But that's their theology nonetheless. Because that is what you're left with. If Jesus loses one, He has failed to do what the Father sent Him to do. If He loses one. But Jesus will not fail to do what the Father sent Him to do. He will fulfill perfectly all of the Father's desire and everything that the Father intended in giving a people to His Son will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled infallibly. It will be fulfilled fully. It will be fulfilled perfectly. Because that's what the Son came to do. And the Son is both willing 
and able to do everything that the Father gave him to do. And there is nothing, nothing at all that can hinder the Son from fulfilling the will of the Father. No will of man, no circumstance, no situation, no sin, no bondage, no slavery, no time, no place. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God for us, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all of creation, height nor depth nor breadth nor any other created thing shall separate us. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. And I am secure in His hand. And I will never perish. And no one will ever snatch me out of His hand. He will lose absolutely nothing. And I am safe all the way to the end. Why? Because I'm better than everyone else? Because I'm better than somebody else? Because my strength is stronger? Because I am better looking? Because I have a better pedigree? Because my, because I, my obedience is better? Because my righteousness will last? What is it that allows me to persevere all the way to the end? It is none of those things. It is this thing and this thing alone. The Father has given me to His Son. And the Son has said, I will save Him, I will keep Him, and I will not lose Him. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Because that is what the Father gave me to do, and I am able and I am willing to do all that the Father gave me to do, and I will do it perfectly so that the Son can stand before the Father and say, Father, it is finished. I have done it. I have accomplished everything You have committed to my charge. All of it. And here it all is. Everything You have given me to redeem has been redeemed. Perfectly. Finally and fully. It is all the work of the Son. It is not my righteousness that prevails before God. It is Christ's. It is not my faith that saves me. It is divine faith. It is a gift of God. It is the means by which I am saved. It is not my repentance that saves me because my repentance can never be repentant enough. It is not my obedience that saves me. It's not my trust. It's not my righteousness. It's not my warring against sin. None of those saves me. I am saved because of Christ and Christ alone and I rest in Him. And I am secure because He will do all that the Father gave him to do, perfectly and fully, all the way to the end. Isn't that a beautiful promise? You can rest in your salvation because the Son is committed to seeing it through all the way to the end without fail, and He has promised this on behalf of those who are His. We serve a good shepherd. What kind of a shepherd lets a sheep be ravished and loses some of his sheep on the right and on the left and everywhere he goes, losing sheep constantly every day, he's losing more sheep. What kind of a shepherd is that? It's not the good shepherd. It's not my shepherd. It's not my Jesus. He is our bridegroom. And what kind of a bridegroom allows his bride to be ravaged and uncared for and to be lost and to wander off? Not our bridegroom, not our Jesus. What kind of a Savior is unable to save people because of their resistance or their will or circumstances or their slavery? What type of a Savior is that? Jesus Christ is not an amateur Savior. He is a perfect Savior. And He is able to fulfill and to save all of those who will come to Him by faith. Because He is the perfect Shepherd, the perfect Bridegroom, the perfect Savior, He will keep everything that the Father has committed to His charge, and He will lose none. Now you say, Jim, that is good news. Because that means since I am kept by Him that I can go out and I can sin wantonly this afternoon. I can go out and fulfill all of the lusts of my flesh and the desires of my carnal nature. I don't have to worry about it because I made a decision and I walked the aisle and I checked the box and I prayed the prayer. And so I'm safe, right? So if no sin is going to take me out of His hands, I may as well go on sinning that grace may abound. If you think that way, you are not a sheep. You're not a sheep. Sheep do not think that way. Goats think that way. Sheep are not willing and they do not desire and they do not plan to sin against their shepherd because they love the one who has saved them and secured them 
and promised them eternal glory and who preserves them even at this moment. They love that one. They do not go out and think, how can I sin against him? How can I reproach his name? How can I blaspheme his name? How can I mar his character in the eyes of an unbelieving world? True sheep do not think that way. Goats think that way. And if you're thinking that way and you're leaving your planning, you haven't planning your sin, you have not heard anything I have said, because that is not what this doctrine teaches. And by the way, you are not saved by a decision or walking an aisle or checking a box or praying a prayer. None of those things save you. And none of those things will keep you. And none of those things will preserve you. Or you say, okay, well, maybe not for me, but man, am I ever thankful because my sister, my brother, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my little uh, friend at work or my co-worker once prayed the prayer when they were four years old and they had an experienced a religious zeal for a period of time, even went to Bible college for a couple of years. Now today they hate Christ, they blaspheme His name, they have no desire for holiness, no hunger for righteousness, want nothing to do with Christ, mock Christianity and God's Word, have no hunger whatsoever for truth, they hate Christ and everything related to Christ, but since He keeps His own, they must be good to go, right? Is that true? No? Listen, if they were good to go, then so was everybody to whom Jesus is speaking in John chapter 6, right? Had they experienced a religious zeal? Verse 15, they tried to make him king. That's religious zealotry, isn't it? They had seen. They had believed. They believed who he was, but it was a shallow belief. No, no, that person is not secure. And here's why. The promises of verses 37, 38, 39, and 40, those promises are for those who belong to Jesus Christ, not for those who pretend for a time to belong to him and want nothing to do with him. The very fact that somebody has walked away from the Savior and wants nothing to do with Him, is evidence of the fact that the Savior did not and is not keeping them. And He is not keeping them because, at this moment at least, we cannot see if they belong to Him. They don't belong to Him. All of John 6 is written to remind us of the difference between the shallow, temporary faith of the multitudes who saw, who believed, who were religiously zealous, and then walked away. That faith is contrasted with the genuine faith at the end of the chapter, of the disciples who said, where else shall we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We will follow you. We love you, signs or not. The point of John 6 is to contrast those two types of faith. And the promises in verses 37 and 38 and 39 are not for those who do not belong to Him or who profess to belong to Him or who make a show of belonging to Him for a period of time. They are for those who truly, genuinely belong to Him. How do I know if I belong to Him? Have you turned from your sin? trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, been born again, been given new affections, a new heart, new desires, and a new life, and are you walking in obedience? That is the only way that you can know for certain that you belong to Him. And if those things do not characterize you, very possible you do not belong to Him. You want to belong to Him? Repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation. Stop playing games. Then you will have the assurance that comes through the Word of God that you do truly, genuinely belong to Him. This is the bottom line, folks. Ultimately, my security in Christ does not depend upon my feeble grip on Him. It depends upon His unfailing, omnipotent grip on me. He preserves me. He keeps me. And by that grace, I am kept and I persevere. He is at work in me both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He is the one who does the work. I am the one who experiences that and continues in His work. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You.
that we are kept by Christ. We thank you for a Savior who is perfect, infallible, and will always do your will. We thank you that you willed to save us and to secure us for yourself. Thank you for these encouraging and assuring truths. And I pray, O oh God, that you would work in the hearts of those who have no reason for assurance to know that they stand on perilous ground if they disobey you and if they have no desire for truth and no love for you and for your word. And may you encourage the hearts of those who are yours here today to trust you more, to love you more, and to rejoice in the security that you have provided in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.